My dad was the most decorated astronaut in history. I was 29 when he disappeared. We have something that might come as quite a shock to you. Your father was experimenting with a highly classified material that could threaten our entire solar system. We're counting on you to find out what's happening out there. Today I'm at Skywalker Sound to talk with the legendary Gary Rydstrom, who has won a remarkable seven Oscars and earned a total of 18 nominations. This included Academy Awards for such classics as Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Jurassic Park, Titanic, and Saving Private Ryan. With additional credits, including Pixar's Toy Story and Finding Nemo, Rydstrom has spent his career at Skywalker Sound, where he was mentored by legendary Star Wars sound designer Ben Burtt. Today, he took a break from mixing to talk with us about James Gray's sci-fi film Ad Astra, which stars Brad Pitt as Roy McBride, an astronaut on a space mission that will also involve a search for his lost father, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Rydstrom was the film's supervising sound editor, designer, and re-recording mixer. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. So, Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Let's start with the science behind the sound in this movie. Um, (laughs) Was there research involved or uh, strategies that you spoke about with James Gray? Well, James Gray, he tried to make it realistic looking. So I did a little bit of research about things like what's the atmosphere on Mars like versus Earth? What would things sound like on Mars? We actually had recordings, thanks to NASA. They have a lot of recordings of space travel. So you can hear what some of that space stuff sounded like. So there's reference. So yeah, we tried to be Even if we weren't doing truly realistic things, we tried to make the track, for the most part, be realistic and then snuck in kind of sounds that were more uh, subconscious, but at the same time, it was was a weird combination of realistic and kind of point of view, subconscious, subliminal sound. So those two things are very different. Would you give us an example? And the subliminal sound, it's a father-son story and it's very internal and Brad Pitt's character is very you know, doesn't say what he means all the time, so he had to get inside his brain. It was Tom Johnson who mixed with me. It's his idea to to take dialogue of Tommy Lee Jones from later in the movie and loop it and turn it into these sound effects. So in the very beginning, when we see Brad Pitt, we're actually hearing bits of dialogue from the future of the movie played as these kind of weird modern tape loops that are trying to get inside Brad Pitt's head. Um, So... And then we took a lot of time. Tommy Lee Jones's voice was used for a lot of these tape loops, and I would stretch it sometimes in the ambiences. So a, a simple thing like the tonal roar of inside the spaceship as Brad Pitt is approaching Neptune is actually a bit of Tommy Lee Jones's dialogue stretched into an endless tone. Hmm. We thought that it might have a subliminal effect. Brad Pitt's character is often alone in this movie. How do you convey that isolation through sound or the absence of sound? Well, he is alone. So you have even the the, the sound of the ship, the kind of the creaks and the mechanical, technical sounds of the ship get less as we get closer to Neptune. He's more and more alone. So it does feel lonelier. There's nothing to comfort him or to, you know, so it's very simple as it goes along. Also, one of the major motifs of the movie, which was designed into it by James Gray, was the use of silence. So 
you know, when we cut outside, for instance, when we take off from the moon, uh, you know, we were inside the spacecraft and we hear all these rattles and engine stuff. And we cut outside and there's nothing. There's no atmosphere on the moon. Same thing when we're, you know, spacewalking when he's dealing with his father at the end. There's no atmosphere. So we hear breathing maybe, some other stuff. But the silence itself is, he's, he's a character who is fighting against loneliness. So silence becomes kind of a key absence of sound in the whole movie. You mentioned the moon. Would you talk about how you did the sound for that sequence, including the chase? Well, the moon uh, lunar rover chase was really fun because it's it's kind of like your classic uh, car chase scene, but... Um, it's kind of Mad Max on the moon. Yeah, Mad it? Max on the moon. Mad Max with no atmosphere. So we keeping with the idea that the sound was all about the point of view so we wanted to you know what did the world what did this experience sound like to Brad Pitt's character um we decided what the only thing you would hear in that lunar chase is things that would come through the microphones in Brad Pitt's helmet so I like the unexpectedness of seeing a, a, a gunfire in that scene and hearing nothing until the impact hits it's funny because we don't really hear we put in kind of a muffled gunshot but we'd, for the most part I didn't want to hear them. So you see them shoot from a distance, you hear nothing at all until the impact. It's kind of a, an extreme version of movies where you don't hear a gun that's firing at you, you only hear the bullet hit. So the, the guns themselves became less important than the impact that they were making on us. And then the impact, I got to use years and years of my career of creating accidentally bad sounding distortion. So here was my chance. So I thought my guess was what he would hear if there was a, a an explosion on their lunar rover was pure distortion and feedback. So that lunar rover chase, the sound effects on it are almost all distortion and feedback for forever. The sounds you're never supposed to put into a track. And we loaded it up with <laughs> distortion. And it's effective because it makes the kind of the overwhelmingness of distortion makes you feel like this must be an incredibly big event. And it's not clean at all. It's incredibly disgusting and distorted and dirty and that contrast of seeing something happen like a car you know lunar rover crash in the distance and hear nothing and then something comes towards you a piece of debris you hear nothing when it goes right by you hear this <laughs> complete overload of our of our circuitry so that's that was what was fun but it was a car chase using all the wrong sounds um, but we have what looks like unidentified rovers approaching our position possible pirate activity. Come build up, build up! Alpha, we need backup ASAP! We're being ambushed! LRV-2 down! Rory, I have a puncture. Roy, you alright? I'm okay. Alpha, repeat! We need... We are not clear, I repeat, we are not clear. We have multiple enemy craft in pursuit. Distortion 2 also in, there's a scene, you know, the climactic scene with Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones floating in space and struggling with each other. Same thing there, that struggle we're hearing as distortion through their microphones, which is a disturbing sound. It's not clean. It's not our world. 
it's what it would sound like out in space. It's both realistic and emotionally effective, which is nice when you can find sounds that are both. It's realistic. That's what it would probably sound like to these people is the distortion coming through their microphones and, and headsets. But it happened to also be emotionally powerful, too. Right. And then to get back to the realism, overall, what was your approach to space travel in this film? Well, you know, the, the movie had this journey aspect. So the first launch we heard was from Earth. So that sounds like every Saturn V launch we've ever done. And then it progresses. So the moon launch has no sound outside, only inside the spaceship. Mars, we put in weird animal sounds, did this to a old sound effects editor trick using animals to make something seem weird. So the rocket explosions and landing on Mars are sweetened with roars and animal sounds to make it seem like it's another world. So we kind of made a progression as we as we went. Although the movie starts with a really interesting scene that's not quite space, but almost space, which is on this world's tallest tower. Right. And, um, you know, the atmosphere is really thin. So it's similar to Mars in a way. So, you know, the explosion and the, the you know, the, the gamma rays that we hear in the opening are kind of, again, we're imagining what it might have sounded like to Brad Pitt's character. So when the explosions happen in the tower, the first thing we actually hear is the distortion in his headset, and then we hear a, a distant muffled boom a nanosecond afterwards. Figured that's probably the way it would sound to him, just a little bit of radio distortion, then a distant boom, and then, you know, play the uh, the contrast of when it gets closer. Now it sounds more real. But when it's further away and in thin atmosphere, it's um, it's different than we normally would hear. Did you record anything at NASA and or did you use NASA archives for any of the material? We definitely, NASA archives are available and they're very interesting. And so we did actually use some of that stuff, but we, we had more fun kind of making our own. You, you, what happens when you do research like that, you find what the sounds really sound like, and then you have fun. Kind of, it's like recreating a quarter pounder with cheese in your kitchen. You, know, you want to make, you make your own version of reality because that's what the sound design fun is. Would you give us an example? Well, I really loved, I found a tool, I don't remember the name of it, but I could take little bits and pieces of dialogue and turn it into ambiences. And it sounded like an ambience inside a space capsule in the middle of space, the kind of these weird sounds. And then, you know, at different points in the movie, I could take a bit of Liv Tyler dialogue and turn it into something if I felt like, you know, Brad Pitt's thinking of Liv Tyler or same thing with Tommy Lee Jones. And so that that tool became, and using that tool to make sounds, it sounded like what I was hearing from NASA, but I was really using Liv Tyler and Tommy Lee Jones. Thank you very much. What other elements did you have to go out and record? A lot of the... It was funny that a lot of the recordings, new fresh recordings we did were a new kind of distortion, just kind of kind of a, a variety of distortion that I didn't have to have in my library. For instance, the rover, just the steady rover on the moon, I just wanted kind of this distorted rumble. And all I did was blow in a microphone. I could do it here, you know, I won't do it. But you just blow into a microphone and just get this steady rumble. So we didn't do a lot of exotic, I didn't, Doug Murray, who preceded us and did a lot of early sound work for the movie, did a lot of the recording of original material that, that we ended up using. So it was a combination of the way, because the movie took a long time to do, so the sound crew changed over time too. So Doug Murray started by doing a lot of the recording, and then we came in and I recorded distortion. That was my, my job. You can demonstrate it. <laughs> well, I don't know if it'll do it, but you have to take the, the if I just do kind of a... 
I have no idea what that sounds like. But if you bypass the windscreen and just blow into the microphone, you could give it some variation too. And you know, the 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 rover driving on the moon—that's all you hear—is just kind of a that that rumble. There you go. Cheapest sound effect known to man. This is a map of an underground lake beneath the launch pad. You'll be able to access the ship from there. We're approaching. They're gonna come for you, you know. I don't... I don't care anymore. I need to get back now. Do what I can. Good luck. What were some of the things you had to go out and record? You mentioned animal noises. Uh, we did animal. That came from Doug Murray. Did, did recordings for there's a there's a baboon attack, which was uh, really interesting. Um, baboon kind of stuff, and then animal stuff. I didn't record any new animals, but I used library that we had. Um, my favorite animal recordings that we had that I used were whales. So there's a fight scene in the movie where a terrible tragedy ends up at this fight that Brad Pitt's character does not want to have, and at the end of it, everyone's you know kind of dead. And whale groans that I happen to already have sounded like ship creaks. So we put them in the fight. You kind of imagine them maybe the stress of the spaceship that they're fighting in, but it really is a whale groan. And the subliminal effect we were hoping for was that Brad Pitt is is wondering, his character is wondering, am I as dark as my father is? Is, is there an animal inside me like my father who did this terrible thing? So... Animal sounds, you know, in moments like that, just feel like there's an id kind of bubbling up in him. Um, that kind of, um, you know, they're, they're in the fight scene preceding the baboon. There are all these animal sounds that are snuck into the passing through the spaceship that you don't hear as animals. You just hear as rumbles and creaks and uh, air hisses and things like that. But they are meant to be, you know, they stand out in a weird way. It's a movie about very technical sounds. And when you hear something organic like an animal growl, grown even if you don't recognize that's a whale it still has this human component to it that stands out because it doesn't happen too much in the movie now this year you also appear in front of the camera <laughs> in a documentary called making waves right. the art of cinematic sound what was the experience life to be on that well that was great that was um uh mitch costin uh who directed it and babette buster who produced it and for years wanted this is a project of theirs um to Bring, sound is a hidden art, and I've often thought that sound people should probably want to keep it that way because if it's hidden, people don't know the effect it has on them, and you can get away with more stuff than if people are really aware. So maybe it was a bad thing, but um, Midge did a great job of explaining sound history and the importance of sound to the experience of going to the movies. So, yeah, my job on that, I went to the premiere of it at Tribeca, which is weird. I go to premieres for movies to do sound for. I don't go to movies where I'm in That'll be the only time this happens for me, but you know, hey, I'll take it. Um, so uh, I was impressed with the movie, and uh, not just uh, you know, not my part of it, but the, the movie itself was a really well done, emotional. My my point that I tried to make in the movie, and the movie tries to make too, is that sound is an emotional carrier. That it's an, it's it's not a technical aspect of filmmaking; it's actually an emotional aspect. Major, what can you tell us about the Lima project? First manned expedition to the outer solar system, sir. Some 29 years ago. And the commander was? It was my father, sir. 
The ship disappeared approximately 16 years into the mission. Uh, no data was ever recovered. Deep space missions were halted after that. Well, Roy, we have something that might come as quite a shock to you. We believe your father is still alive near Neptune. My father's alive, sir? We believe so. Could you share something that you learned earlier in your career that continues to stay with you? Oh, I think I learned early in my career and it stays with me is that less is more. This seems like an obvious lesson for a lot of things, but in sound it's really hard because especially these days, people are making movies bigger and bigger and bigger, trying to get the audience's attention by having more happen, just having things be denser, busier, faster, and louder. And uh, years ago, it was really on the film Terminator 2 with James Cameron that it was this big action film, and I was young enough that my approach to it was I was going to throw in every kitchen sink I had to try to make it as bombastic and big and and he's the one that kept pulling it back and focusing it. And the lesson I learned was, even in sound, you think that it'll be more impactful if this chase has, you know, 68 sounds happening at this moment. But it's more impactful if you have one sound happening at that moment, and then the next moment you have another one. Even for an action film like that. And it's counterintuitive, and it's not a lesson that uh, comes easily. But, and I, I think it's a lesson that's not just for sound. I think Sometimes in film, we by doing too much, we minimize the impact. In Ad Astra, the um, the picture, Hoyt and Hoytema cinematography, and your sound just works so well together. Um, to what extent did you watch those images, and did they drive the sound? Oh, it's always always the case that imagery helps inspire sound. There's a coldness to some of the imagery. There's a starkness. There's certainly loneliness. I mean, the um, the way the film is shot. I mean, it really was using space travel. I've imagined NASA might not like the movie. The movie ultimately tells us that space travel can be a very isolating and lonely thing and separate us from you know, humanity. So the imagery, I think, more and more as it goes, it really isolates the audience and the character. You feel, you feel a coldness. It's tricky to make a movie like that because you don't want the audience to feel cold. You want them to still connect with the one, and by the end, you're really just connecting with Brad Pitt and ultimately Tommy Lee Jones. So you still need to connect to them as humans. But, you know, the, the visuals in the movie were striking, just beautiful. And, uh, and space travel has been done in many different ways, but this has a unique tonal quality to the visuals, and we, we gratefully pull a tone from the visuals of a movie. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. 